At the heart of the good news of the gospel is the forgiveness of sins. When you think about your sins being like the sands of the seashore in number, and yet in Christ they've all been washed away. Psalm 103 says, God has removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. They are forgotten by God. They are put away by the blood of Christ. And through the forgiveness of sins, we are brought near to God. We are brought to God, which is the very aim of forgiveness. That is the good news of the gospel, that God is our God, and through the blood of Christ, we are brought near. But there's perhaps nothing more visibly contradictory to the gospel when we can't forgive one another. There's nothing perhaps more visibly contradictory to the good news of the gospel that all our sins have been forgiven by God and yet we hold grudges and we are not willing to forgive one another. This morning, we look at forgiving one another as we continue to look at this short series of what the Bible says about what we're to be to one another. So in Colossians 3, verse 13, Paul writes, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel, a blame, which is what the word means, a complaint, against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also, like that, you forgive. You forgive. So we simply look at the prerequisite for forgiveness and then the pattern of forgiveness. There's a prerequisite in these passages, something that needs to precede it, and there's also a pattern, even as... God in Christ has forgiven you. Just like that pattern that we see in the Bible, that's how you're to forgive. So we'll look at some of those. It may not be exhaustive, but we'll look at that pattern. First, the prerequisite. Verse 12, put on therefore. The word put on means to put on clothing, to sink down into some clothes. So there's this new man with a new image with a new purpose and a new life and a new identity and a new home, a new way of living that Paul has been describing. Then he says, put it on like you put on your clothing. And then he lists three pairs of clothing. And the reason I put them in pairs is because Paul does elsewhere in the Bible. So we have mercy and kindness, humility and meekness, long-suffering and forbearing. You'll see those patterns. Ephesians 4.32, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted. Those are the same Greek root words of the same words. So Paul pairs them together when he talks about forgiveness in Ephesians 4.32. In Ephesians 4.2 he would say, verse 1, I as the prison of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And what, what does it mean to walk congruous or in harmony with that calling? With all lowliness and meekness. So he couples them together. Then with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. So Paul elsewhere puts these in pairs, and we'll look at those pairs. These are prerequisites. If you don't have on the clothing and you're naked when it comes to forgiveness, spiritually, you won't have the power to forgive. So this is some of the clothing. First, Paul labors in his epistles so that we come to grips with our new identity in Christ. He labors over that. It's the foundation of what we find in the Bible. So when Paul says, put on therefore, he's referring back to this new man, this new image, that in verse 10 he says, we put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him, that is Christ, that created him. Where? Locative, where is that? Where this new man exists, there's a new community of people 
that have a new elder brother and a new way of living. So where this new man exists in the covenant community called church, where there is what? Neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and Christ in all. Therefore, essentially, Paul is saying, put on Christ. You're united to Christ by faith. And as we saw last Sunday, baptism is the picture, the symbol that is designed to convey to the world that you have been united to His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Now we walk in newness of life. And Paul now is talking about that again in this chapter in verse uh, 12, put on therefore, put on Christ. He would speak similarly in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 where he says, you're all children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. When do you become a child of God? When you come to faith in Christ. You're united to Christ by faith. Verse 27, for as many of us have, as have been baptized into Jesus Christ have put on Christ. Baptism being that Visible, dramatic display of being united to Christ by faith. So Paul uses this as shorthand for conversion. For as many of us as have been baptized into Jesus Christ, we've put on Christ. Then he says the same language we find in verse 11 of chapter 3 in Colossians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ. Now what does that mean? I suppose that could get a lot of traction in our day, right? There's no male nor female. Is Paul supporting non-binary identification? No. No. He's not contradicting God in Genesis where he says he created the male and female. What is he saying there? See, the Jew wanted to erect a, a redistricting in the church in Galatians. They wanted to draw some lines and redistrict the lines and bring back the law. Because that's what separated them from the Gentiles. In fact, a Jewish man would often pray, it is said like this, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, I'm not a slave, and I'm not a woman. Paul is destroying the lines that divide us in our fellowship and that sometimes we use to be superior to other people. Brothers and sisters, we still maintain distinct roles in the church. We still have certain nationalities that we can call ourselves by. But in Christ, those lines no longer divide us. Why? We're all, where Christ is all, Paul would say. He is all. That no longer defines us, it no longer divides us because we're all one in Christ. Doesn't mean there's no more male or female, no more uh, roles and distinctions that we have. It's just they are not the basis of fellowship. We are all equal with regard to our position in Christ, because He is all now, and we're all in Him. So if we try to re-divide lines or or reconstruct them in the church, we're going against the very thing that Christ did in tearing down the middle wall of the partition that divides people. Yes, they're still black and white. They're still American and Russian. They're still different nationalities and they're still male and female. But now in Christ, all barriers that have destroyed fellowship are gone. And let us not be believers that are trying to redraw the lines in the sand because Christ has obliterated it. No longer divided by these things, no longer define us. Because as you know, we've stated before, What you seek to find your identity in, that's where you find your purpose, your meaning of life. Christ is all. And so we get our identity from being in Christ. So Paul says, on that basis, put on this clothing. Because He's all and He's in all. And so as a body of believers, all of us need to be putting on this clothing, which is essentially Putting on Christ. When you look at these uh, articles of clothing, you see Christ. You see the image of Christ. You see the new man, and this is the new life we're to live. So Paul says, put on therefore, 
because you're in Christ as the elect of God, holy and beloved. And then he lists these articles of clothing. These three words, Paul again is going to capture something that should grip our souls and our minds when it comes to forgiveness or anything God calls us to do in the community called the church. The elect of God. God chose to create you, beloved. And He chose to have you. And that should fill us with wonder and amazement. And on what basis did He do so? On the basis of His good pleasure. His pleasure is good. Would you deny that? Would you say God has an evil pleasure? And His pleasure is right. It's always right because it's aiming at the supremacy of His name. Nothing moves God to choose you. Nothing is suggestive to God to choose you. Nothing encourages God except His own good pleasure. Paul uses these three same words or forms of these same words in Ephesians 1 and he he expands a little more on it, but you'll see the same three there. Ephesians 1.4 According as He hath chosen us in Him, in Him, before the foundation of the world. See, You're in Christ. You were chosen to be in Christ. You were selected by God to be in Christ. These three same words are used concerning the Old Testament Israelite, the nation of Israel. God had chosen them. God had set them apart. And they were the beloved of God. So if we're going to be forgiven, forgive one another rather, we've got to come to the grips with the reality that the reason God's grace, the reason God's mercy is upon us is that He decided to do so freely, independently of anything He might have foreseen or anything that might be found in you. Because the Bible declares there's nothing good in us. That is, in our nature, in who we are, there is nothing absolutely there that could move God to choose you. And the suggestion of it is belittling God's nature and His glory. It suggests that He's dependent on you providing some recommendation, something in you, by which He would then take that recommendation and say, well, that's a good idea. That's not the God we serve, beloved. He's the independent God. Next, holy. Holy, hagios, to be a saint, to be set apart. That's an amazing reality. How is it that God could say about sinners that you're holy? How is that even possible? Because you're in Christ. And by virtue of your attachment to Christ by faith, His righteousness and all that He is is yours freely. It's not because you've done anything holy. It's because He is holy. The God that you serve is holy. And His plan of salvation has been worked out to sustain the glory of His holiness and bring His holiness to you by virtue of Christ's righteousness and His holiness which we receive by faith. That's the second word Paul uses in Ephesians 1. According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. Holy. There is no blame that you have. Now you're, you're blameable. There is a lot to blame you for, isn't there? But in God's sight, you are unblameable and you stand faultless before His throne because you're in Christ. Alone. That's why. And then because you're in Christ, putting on the clothing of Christ is how God is further progressing us in holiness and sanctification. So the progressive sanctification or the holiness that we're pursuing is not contributing to the holiness that you already have positionally. You can't contribute to it. That is glorious news. You will not ever in your life through a prayer, a thought, a good deed, or anything contribute one iota, which is a small punctuation mark in the Hebrew. Not one iota to your right standing with God. 
Because it comes from being in Christ. You're attached to Him. You're holy, positionally. He's making you holy, inwardly and outwardly, progressively. And one day you'll be stand completely faultless and without blame before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. All by free and sovereign grace. Holy. The third word is beloved. You are dearly beloved of God. Now this is the root of the other two. This is the source of election and holiness. It's God's love. That's the third word Paul will capture in Ephesians 1, isn't it? According as He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy without blame before Him in love. See, here He's just doing shorthand. There He gives a little more explanation. So He's just recapping this reality. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, on what basis? According to the good pleasure of His will. He willed it. He willed it. On what basis? Good pleasure. So He adopted you into the family. You became His adopted child, Paul said in Galatians 3.26, when you came to faith. You came in possession of your union with Christ. At that moment, you were adopted into the family. Not before. In the purpose of God, it was done, but you became a child of the King with all the rights and privileges of that adoption when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. He's adopted you. You're in Christ. Put on, therefore. Put Him on. God, if I can say, deeply loves you. How deep? As deep as His whole soul. Jeremiah 32. He rejoices over you with His whole soul. How intense is that? But He has sovereignly set His love upon you. And out of that love, out of the wellspring of His sovereign prerogative and His deep love, you're chosen wholly out of that love. Paul wants us to come to grips with the reality of our identity in Christ. That's what it means. Okay, on that basis, what does he say? Now put this clothing on. This is going to lead us to forgiveness. This is, going to, this is going to shape our hearts, our souls, our thoughts in such a way that when the time to forgive comes, which it comes regularly, forgiveness should be the fabric of this church and every church, right? We say we're sinners and we demonstrate that, which means we're going to demonstrate forgiveness on a routine basis, right? It should be the fabric and the makeup of this body that we are a forgiving people after the pattern that God establishes in His Word. So let's look at some of these pairs Briefly, first, put on bowels of mercies and kindness. Now, when the Jewish people wanted to speak about their feelings, they didn't use abstract terms like the Greeks did. They would use physiological terms like bowels, gut, because that's where you feel hatred, love, anger, anxiety. You know, you have something going on in the gut that produces emotion. There's There's a connection there. We, we say that sometimes. We say, that was gut-wrenching, or that was a visceral response. Or we even say, heartbroken. Heart associated with brokenness and emotion. So that may seem a bit strange to use the word bowels, but that's how the Jewish people did it, and we, to some degree, still use such terminology. In the pit of the gut. I, f- I felt it in the pit of my stomach. That's just an expression of emotion. That's compassion. So we're putting on compassion, sympathy that wells up in the gut area. And we're putting on kindness, which is useful, helpful, benevolent, like a benevolent fund you know, that keeps going out to people. There are funds, whether it's a church benevolent fund or in society, it goes out to people in need. So that's what's necessary for us to forgive. We need to be a people that are compassionate and a people that are kind and useful and benevolent 
Now, I think that's why Paul starts with those three words, because when we look at the benevolence of God, His kindness, and the mercy of God, what's the upshot? It should produce mercy, compassion, and kindness. In fact, Paul will link our union with Christ with these very two words in Ephesians chapter 2. Remember? He would say, But God who is rich in mercy... With the great love wherewith He loved us, there's mercy and love. Where did this mercy come from? His great love wherewith He loved us. What did He do? He quickened us together with Christ. When we were dead in sins, for by grace are you saved. So in His rich, plenteous mercy, and the love wherewith He loved you because you're dearly beloved, what did He do? Even when you were dead in innumerable sins and could not rescue yourself out of that condition, He came to you in mercy, and He quickened you in Christ. Union. Your being made alive was not independent, it was in Christ. And then what did He do? He raised you up together in Christ. And then what did He do? You are seated together in heavenly places with Christ. That's like a death, burial, and a resurrection, isn't it? That's what Paul says in Colossians 3.1. If you then be risen with Christ, if you're united with Christ, if you've been quickened with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ, seek those things which are above. Now look at how he connects it with kindness also in Ephesians 2.7. You've been quickened together, raised together, seated together, so that, verse 7, in the ages to come, that means now, and all of them in the future. God's not waiting to do what this verse says. He's not just waiting to heaven. It's going to be full there in this current gospel age that we live in, ages to come. He might show, put on display, demonstrate to you the exceeding riches, exhaustibility, inexhaustibility, rather. Exceeding riches. How rich is God? He cannot be exhausted. His grace cannot be exalted. You can't use it up. It's infinite. In fact, when you take some of His grace, it's still just the same as it was. It's, it's, it's infinite. That in the ages to come, He might show what is the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness to you in Christ Jesus. That's the aim of union. We think about the kindness of God and the mercy of God. And we've been chosen and holy and we're beloved of God. Then out of that, The expectation is we're putting on mercy and compassion and we're putting on benevolence like the benevolence of our own Father. He is so kind, generous, and good. So we we keep ourselves in the light of that mercy and kindness. Then every day we get up, we have to slip on on the garments of these two articles. Would you be characterized as a benevolent, merciful, compassionate person? That you're kind. Not nice, that's not what the word means, but you're, you're useful, you're helpful, because you're like your father. You're becoming like your elder brother, Jesus Christ, because you're in his family now, and you're taking on the likeness of the father through the son, and you're putting on the new image and the new man, which is created by him, that is Christ. And so you're in Him, but we've got to put Him on. So those are the first two things that we need as a prerequisite, something required in order to do something else. So Paul's leading us to forgiveness here. That's the first pair. Second pair. Humbleness of mind, meekness. These often go together in Scripture. We saw in Ephesians 4 too. Humbleness of mind just means a low way of thinking about yourself. Not an inappropriate degrading, debasing way that's not biblical, but a low view of self because you have a high view of God. You can think yourself pretty high when you're next to something pretty low until you stand to something that's really, really big. And then you get a sense of how small you are. I think I'm pretty average height until I stood next to this gentleman just... A couple of days ago, it was about six, seven, or six, eight, or some of you guys. I'm feeling like I'm pretty low. It's a matter of reference. Humbleness of mind, when you look at the mercy of God and the kindness of God, when you see the greatness of God, then you begin to see yourself in the right light. 
to be low, to have humbleness of mind. It's an attitude, it's a disposition that is the exact opposite of pride, isn't it? So, what happens if you bring pride to the table called forgiveness? That's not going to go well. So you need humility of mind. You need to be thinking rightly about yourself because then when you approach your brother and sister and you're going to forgive them or they're going to forgive you, pride says, I didn't do anything wrong. What are you talking about? Pride says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them. Now, they got this coming to them. Now, they shouldn't treat me that way. No, nobody should treat me that way. What is that? That's pride. When you're humble, you realize, I deserve nothing. And yet I have everything. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, the world is yours. Things present, things to come, all things are yours because you belong to Christ and Christ is God's. You've been given everything in God and you deserve nothing. Nothing. That's the right view toward God. Now what happens? Meekness. Meekness means mild, gentle, not easily provoked. Are you easily provoked? I really wish I could tell you I never am. But I am sometimes. You ever have that moment where you're easily provoked and it was something so small and you think, where did that come from? And Jesus reminds you out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth spoke. So you can't blame her and you can't blame him or you can't blame them. There may have been some provocation, but it easily came out of your own heart. So that makes me blameable. In the sight of God. Meekness or mildness or not easily being provoked comes out of that humility because I'm seeing God's greatness and I realize I don't deserve anything. So what if somebody treats me wrong? What if? No, that doesn't mean that's right. We're talking about my disposition to that wrong. See, The more elevated I am in self, the more bitter, wrathful, angry, clamorous, Slanderous and malicious I am. Those are the contrast in Ephesians 4.31 to forgiveness. Lay aside all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, outcry. Now I'm going to talk about it. Evil speaking. Now I'm going to talk about them, what they did to me. Malicious. Now I'm malicious toward them. I want something bad to happen to them. Put it all away. And be ye kind one to another, forgiving one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another. You see, the contrast is that speech and that attitude that we have because humility and meekness have gone out of the door. That's what happens to us sometimes, isn't it? When I can stay focused on who God is and what I am in Christ, it brings me to a humility over and over again that then leads me not to be so easily provoked when I am wrong because there's something to do here when you're wrong. There is a forgiveness that needs to take place. There's a transaction that needs to happen. But how will it go if we're not mild and gentle? We will be so easily provoked and it won't go well. In fact, we will be bitter. James says in James 3, Who is a wise man among you? I would ask the question here. We could say a wise woman. I think you all are pretty wise people. Who is a wise man among you? Let him show out of a good conversation, lifestyle, his works with meekness of wisdom. Now here's the contrast to meekness. But if you have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, lie not and glory not against the truth. This wisdom is not from above. It is earthly. It is sensual. It is from the devil. That's a pretty shocking word, isn't it? The apostles sometimes used shock factor to get our attention, and that's from God. What is bitter envy? I should have what they have. Why don't I have it? I shouldn't be experiencing this. Why don't they experience it? And then selfish ambition. That's when the focus is on me. It's what I want. It's what I desire. And beloved, in a narcissistic culture, one of the traits of narcissism, which is excessive self-indulgence, is entitlement. I'm not, I, I'm not entitled to be treated that way. I'm entitled to have this. I'm entitled to that. And I'm upset. I'm angry. I'm bitter. And we see that all over the culture. Now let me ask you, do you think a person like that is ready? Is ready to forgive? 
No. They are ready to make you pay for everything you did to them. Because we've lost sight of the mercy and kindness of God. We're not living in the light of His greatness and humility, and therefore we're not gentle. We are bitter. Now what's the wisdom that's from above, according to James? It is first pure, peaceable. Every time I say these words, I want to get real quiet for some reason. They just sound that way. Pure, peaceable. Gentle and easy to be treated. Easy to talk to. Full of mercy. There's mercy. Full of good fruits. That would include forgiveness. Without partiality. There's no dividing line here. I'm not separating partiality. And without hypocrisy. I'm not hiding anything. Bring it into the light of God's Word. And the fruit of righteousness is being sown in peace of them that make peace. See, when we fake peace, we're not forgiving one another. We make peace. It's going to come out of a heart that is humble and that has gentle, mild disposition, not easily provoked, that then is wearing the articles of clothing that then brings us with humility and meekness to our brother and sister and is ready to do the hard work of reconciliation. It's hard, isn't it? You should never be excited about that. Never feel good about that. Sometimes that hinders us from doing it. I just don't feel good about it. It's going to be hard. Maybe that's, a, that's telling you, maybe you're, you're ready if it's going to be hard and you don't want to do it. Because it's not an easy thing. So humility and meekness, when we're being clothed with that, we're, we're coming with that prerequisite and we want to forgive. And then the third pair of prerequisites, and, and these are prerequisites for the Christian life, because what's Paul going to start with in verse 18? Relationships. Wives, husbands, children, masters, employees. See, this is the clothing we need to be wearing every day when it comes to relationships in the church and elsewhere. Here's the next two. Long-suffering, forbearing one another. Long-suffering means slow in avenging wrongs. Beloved, God has not called us to be avengers. I know you probably want to be, but you're not an avenger. An avenger is someone who's going to inflict punishment for a wrong that's taken place. Long-suffering means slow to avenge. Now you may say, I'm not an avenging type. I couldn't harm anybody and hurt anybody. Let's talk about that. You ever give anybody the silent treatment? You're an avenger. I'm not going to talk to them. Now why are you doing that? Well, you're punishing them. You're going to punish instead of forgive. So... I'm not going to talk. You're trying to inflict pain. That's what you want to happen. Now, why do you want that to happen? Because you're angry, you're wrathful, you're bitter. Now that starts to move out. Maybe not in like really physically harming someone, nothing too bad. I'm just never going to speak to that person. Imagine if God did that to you because of your sin. I don't even want to think about it. That would have meant a long time ago. God would have stopped listening to me. So I don't give people the silent treatment. Well, think about another few ways. I just talk about them. There comes the clamor, outcry. Rather than talk to them about it, you're going to talk to everybody else. Maybe you start with your husband. I'm not talking about the conversation where you talk about how to deal with this. How should we seek reconciliation? Could you, could you help me with that? No, you're just going to tear them down. Right there in family. And all your children hear it. And they start getting bitter against the person that's mistreating you. And everybody's bitter against the man or the woman or the brother and sister because you're tearing them down rather than slow to avenge. That's vengeance. You, you, you want to defame them to other people. So every chance you get, every opportunity in the church, you're going to tell them, well, they're not as good as you think they are. <laughs> Let me tell you some things about that person. This is contradictory to the gospel. You say, well, I don't, I don't usually do that. Well, maybe you, you've ex- excluded them from your invitation list. You know, before they would have been in the top ten. I'm going to invite that person. But now, you're not going to invite them. Now, what's the point? You're, you're, you're avenging yourself. 
you know they're going to think, what happened? why didn't I get invited? Now maybe they don't even know what they did wrong, which is usually most of the time. But you've decided to take them off your list. You're not going to invite them. You're not going to talk to them. You're going to talk about them. And so, eh, I just overlooked them. You know that was intentional. Because you've got to get vengeance. And we overlook these subtle ways of being avengers because I didn't really do anything bad to them, but, but the intent is to harm them. And then when you have to talk to the person, finally, it happened at church, I, I was forced to talk, then maybe you give innuendos or you speak about events that you know isolated or exclude them. You're, you're doing whatever you can to let them know except the right way to let them know the pain that they have brought to you and how you are trying desperately to get them to pay for what they have done. Beloved, God says, be slow to avenging wrong. You say, well, I can be slow. I can wait a month. I can wait six months. I can even wait a year just as long as I do so. But the next word comes into couple and linked to that word, which is forbearing one another. The word here means to hold oneself up against firm. You say, well, I, I can do that too. I can wait to get vengeance, and then I can hold myself up firm against that person, but the meaning is with equanimity, calmness, self-control. Do you know what you're holding yourself up against? Your bitterness and your wrath and your anger and all those filthy responses of communication that Paul forbids here and in Ephesians 4. That's what you're holding yourself up against a response that dishonors God. How long do I hold myself up against that? Just as long as it takes to do the next thing. Forgive. See? Something's happening to that bitterness and that wrath and that anger. It's being taken somewhere. We forgive after the pattern of Christ's forgiveness, which leads us now to the pattern. Look at verse 13 again, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, and Ephesians Paul says, God for Christ's sake, so they both fit here, even as Christ forgave you, just like that, just after that pattern, this is what you're to do in contrast to all those dispositions that prevent and hinder not only forgiveness, but life and relationship in the body of Christ. Let's look at a few ways that we see the pattern of God's forgiveness toward us. First of all, God forgives you every day, doesn't He? There's a pattern. Matthew 6, 9, Pray after this manner, therefore, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, how many and how often, with what frequency, does God forgive your debts? How often do you ask Him to forgive your debts? I'm going to assume you do that every day, just like you ask for daily bread. At what frequency should you forgive one another? Every single day. And the implication is, every time you're asked to. Every time you ask for forgiveness. And some relationships, like family, that, that becomes a daily issue, doesn't it? See? Is there things going on in your family that you need to ask forgiveness of just about every day? Probably so. And in our life together as a church, is it, is it not easy for us to offend one another and say something and do something? That was clearly something I am to be blamed for. It, it certainly is. So the fabric of our church, the fabric of our relationships, this is not an oddity, should be daily, regular forgiveness. Number two, God forgives you all your sins. Notice the implication in Paul's words. If any man have implied what? Any quarrel against any. Forgive. Do you ever put a, a lifetime limit on your forgiveness or maybe frequency or maybe how bad it is? I can forgive to this point, but when somebody goes above that line, I just can't do it. Well, look at verse 13 of Colossians 2. 
And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath He quickened together with Him, there's union, having forgiven you all trespasses. He must mean all up to that point. No, He doesn't. He means all in the future. All of them. All of them. All of them. You ever wrestle with that? I could see how God could forgive this, but I, I've, I've done this. I've done something so terrible. So shameful. I, I, I don't even want anybody to know about it. Could I be forgiven for that? All of them. All of them. So what's the pattern? You forgive all trespasses against you. All of them. All of them. Yes, sometimes there's some collateral damage and things that have to be worked through. I understand it. Sometimes there's some restitution that needs to take place that goes beyond the forgiveness. But the point is, all trespasses. Years ago, insurance companies used to put a lifetime limit on your coverage. So if you pass that limit, guess what? No more coverage as long as you're on that policy. I remember as a young man seeing that, I thought, what, what do I do then? I think they've changed that at this point in time. Peter tried to put a lifetime limit on his number of forgiveness in Matthew 18, 21. It says, Lord, if my brother offend me, how, how, how often should I forgive him? Till seven times? Surely he thought that was pretty good. Surely he thought he was stretching it. Might have elbowed somebody. John, listen, he's going to come back and say two or three. I know I went above the limit. He said, I say not into these seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, don't get hung up on the number because the frequency is not the issue. Jesus makes very clear in the parable of the wicked servant or the unforgiving servant that the issue is the heart of forgiveness. When the heart is in the right position with God, the frequency is a non-issue. Now, yes, if somebody offends you seven times in a day for the same sin, there's a problem with the genuineness of their repentance and something needs to be worked out. There's some more work to be done. But Jesus is addressing the heart of forgiveness because insurance companies wanted to protect their number one asset called profit. You and I want to protect number one asset called what? Self. There's just so much I'm going to let people do to me. There's just so much that I can forgive. And when people do this to me, that's it. That's pride, beloved. Isn't it? Have you ever thought that way? So the parable, the king forgives 10,000 talents to the servant who said, interestingly, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you back. Be patient, I'll pay you back. 10,000 talents has been translated in the currency of that day, to take him 200,000 years to pay back. He's deluded. He's clouded in the vision. There's a problem with this man's thinking in his heart as it relates to the king. So what does he do? He goes and finds his fellow servant that owes him 100 pence. Just pennies. Pennies. Takes him by the neck. The same servant says the same thing, or a different servant. Be patient with me and I'll repay you everything. He demanded payment. He would not forgive. Jesus sums it up and says, So will your heavenly Father do to you if you do not forgive from the heart. That tells us the whole issue with the servant. And maybe the issue that you and I deal with like Peter is there's something in the heart that tries to put a lifetime limit on forgiveness. And it's again my number one asset, which is me. The moment we think we can actually work off debt, with God, that we can do something to contribute to working off our debt, what happens? We demand that fellow servants work off their debt with us. And that's what he demanded. And so what's at the heart? He, he wasn't glad about the cancellation of the debt. He didn't treasure from the heart. He wasn't filled with the wonder of the debt he was forgiven because he thought he could work it off. And so he goes and grabs a fellow servant by the, by the neck and demands that he work it all. You ever demanded that from your brother and sister? I'm not forgiving you. You have to work that off. But what's the standard? You become the standard. When you're satisfied, when you're satisfied with the debt has been worked off, then they're forgiven. Do you want God to deal with you that way? How long would it take you to work to satisfy the debt? 
How about an eternity in hell and you still won't satisfy the debt? The debt has been paid in Christ. And when we come to that realization and we treasure that, then, yes, the pain and the injury and the wrong is not to be belittled. There is going to be cost there. There is going to be pain. And there's going to be losses when we're wronged. And then we can gladly forgive because we have been forgiven by God. And that makes us glad because we could never repay the debt. So He forgives you all your sins. Furthermore, He forgives you on the basis of repentance. Sometimes we overlook that. So I'm, I'm just going to forgive them. Well, that, that's not the way God works your forgiveness. See, if there's a quarrel or a blame, the blame needs to be assigned and be told before forgiveness can be extended. We find that pattern in Acts chapter 2. God has a quarrel with all humanity. He brings His quarrel to the Jewish people first. And He uses Peter to assign the blame. And what does Peter say? Acts 2.23 Him being delivered by the determinate counsel or knowledge of God, that's Christ, you have taken and with wicked hands you've crucified Him. Now that's not indirect language, beloved. Peter says, you are to blame. He assigns the blame in the preaching of the Word. The people received the blame. They were pricked in their hearts. And Peter says, we are forgiven. You don't need to ask what you need to do. You don't need to ask any questions. Just go on home. Men and brethren, what should we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Christ, for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. Peter's attaching forgiveness with repentance and confession, and they gladly did so. We are not empowered to receive forgiveness from God until we repent and believe the gospel. You cannot have it, because in fact it's not yours. It's only for those that repent and turn from sin turn to Christ in faith, and become followers of Jesus Christ. You have the right and the assurance of being forgiven. Now, horizontally, that's the pattern. that We are to use one with another. We are to forgive and to confess to one another. So, Jesus says in Luke 17, 3, He says, Take heed. If a brother trespass against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Look at the pattern. Rebuke, which means you're going to tell him. You're going to charge him. Now don't forget humility and meekness. So that The word can sound kind of strong. You're, you're going to tell him about the blame. And if he repents, forgive him. What if he doesn't? You don't forgive him. That sounds kind of out of sync with the gospel, doesn't it? No, because Matthew 18 says there's more work to be done. Now you take two or three witnesses with you. Because you may be charging the brother or sister wrongly. You ever been charged wrongly? Two independent witnesses come in and say, Brother, that, that's not sin. He didn't sin against you. That, or you clearly sinned against him. You need to repent and be reconciled. Now if he doesn't hear the two or three witnesses, what do you do? You tell it to the church. And if the brother or sister will not hear the church, he is to be unto the church a publican and a sinner. What does that mean? I'm already a sinner. It means he's to be placed outside the membership of the church and to be treated like an unbeliever. Now, how do we treat unbelievers? Not harshly. We witness the gospel to them. So you're going to encourage that repentance. You keep encouraging that repentance. So Jesus says, if he repents... Forgive him. If he doesn't, there's more work to be done. And that's the hard work of church life, isn't it? And I have been through multiple occasions like that. When I was the offender, I was the one to be blamed. Please forgive me. See, when that first meeting takes place, typically you don't need the two or three witnesses or even the church. It's just being settled routinely. And reconciliation is taking place in the body. So that's preventing, uh, we're forbearing what? That bitterness and wrath and anger that, that takes over our hearts toward that brother or sister. And what happens? It, pre- it creates a gap between us. We are grudging one another. We are upset with one another because genuinely there's been a wrong committed. 
And so we are to seek forgiveness by telling them about the blame. And then there's a process to follow that God gives us. Now, at this point, you have two options, the Bible says. You can cover it or confront. 1 Peter 4, 7 or 8, Peter says, Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover a multitude of sins. Cover means just to hide it. Just to throw the covers on it. How many times in your relationships, family and church, are there a multitude of, we'll just say, small sins, sometimes even large ones? Just somebody said something, and it was hurtful, and you just covered it. Love wants to cover it. Just, they neglected, they didn't shake my hand. I looked right at them and tried to shake. They didn't look and probably didn't see me. I'm I'm not going to be offended by that. You can cover it. Or you can confront it. Now, how do you know when to go from covering to confronting? When the cover won't hide it. In other words, it's really, really bothering you. See, when you hide something, you forget about it. You remember when that brother didn't shake your hand last week? What are you talking about? But when you feel the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and it's affecting your fellowship with that brother and sister, now you have to confront. Because you're not able to put off those old vices unless you bring the blame to a brother and sister. So you can cover, or if not, you need to confront because you can't forget it. It's, 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 it's a hurt. It's a wrong that you just can't shake off. And then we carry it to the brother or sister because we're carrying the cross with us because that's where all sin is dealt with. Ours and our brothers and sisters. Then you forgive eagerly. You're ready to forgive. That's the pattern of God. Psalm, I think it's 86, for thou, art, for thou, Lord, art good, plenteous in mercy, or ready to forgive, plenteous in mercy to all them that call upon thee. Nehemiah 9, 7. He's ready to pardon. Now I picture God leaning towards you. He's in a position of readiness that at your call, I forgive you. Now notice the condition. Call upon Him. Faith, repentance, confession. He's ready. The word ready means to placate. He's easily appeased. Why is he so easily appeased? Because his wrath, beloved, has been appeased forever. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, he's peering over heaven towards you, ready, willing, eager to forgive you. Isn't that an amazing God? He's plenteous in mercy. He's ready to flow out in mercy when you call upon him. Now, would you be described as a person ready to forgive? I don't know that that describes me, frankly. I just got to be honest with you. I'd probably ask my family and say, "Mm, I don't want to answer that. I want to be that way. When we understand the gospel and we have it in view, we ought to be ready to forgive, willing and eager to forgive. See this in God. We see this in the parable of the prodigal son, illustrated that son that was wasted the father's living and money and riotous living. He wanted the inheritance before the father was actually dead, which seems to imply what? Just wish he was dead. He was dead to the son. He goes out, lives, spends all his money, loses everything, and he has the audacity, the nerve to come back to his father's house. What was the position of the father? He sees him afar off. Nobody had to say, your son's coming. He sees him. He runs to meet him. Now, would you have closed the door, locked it, or maybe like you do in the grocery store sometimes when you see somebody and you either don't have time to talk or you don't want to talk to them, you, you kind of duck down one aisle? I guess I'm telling too many secrets here if nobody else struggles with that. I don't have time. So you duck and you hide. Imagine God doing that. Here he comes. 
hide, hide the fatted calf, hide my ring, put my, my coat back in the closet, and just sit and we'll see what happens. He runs to him. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner than, that repents over 99 just persons who don't need repentance. And what's the illustration of that joy? He's ready. He is eager and he runs to meet you because his wrath has been placated. Or he wouldn't. It's been placated. Beloved, the injuries that you endure from one another have been placated by Christ. And the exchange of repentance and confession and forgiveness just affirms that. Let us be ready and willing to forgive. Let us know what this means, Jesus said. Go and learn what this meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Let's not bring our sacrifices to God. Let's love mercy and delight to show it and be ready to forgive. And then finally, God forgives and He forgets it. He doesn't really forget it, does He? No, He can't. Their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. God knows all things. And God doesn't forget like you and I do. That would be a sign of weakness, infirmity, the problems we have forgetting. Even when our minds are maybe at youth and sharpest, we still forget. God cannot forget. It's like when you want to remember something, you write it in your calendar, you put it on your phone, you put it on your computer. The point of remembering is to take action. What God is saying is, I'm not going to bring it up. Oh yeah, I remember it. I, I know what happened. I know why my son died and I know the sins I've forgiven, but I'll never bring it up to you again. We go on record to say, Beloved, when we forgive one another, I'm not going to bring it up again. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm not going to say, You, just like the last time you did that. Now maybe there's a pattern of sin that we have to deal with, but if you forgive and you go on record to say, I'm not bringing it up, Again, yes, there's some, maybe some growth that needs to happen, some help depending on the sin to overcome that, we find in the Bible. But as far as the record is concerned, it's over, it's done. I've forgotten it, which means, oh, I may remember it next week, that the pain of what happened may flood my soul again. It just comes up inadvertently. You didn't plan it. But you go on record not to treat them on the basis of that forgiven sin and not to bring it up to them again, because that's what God does for you. Isn't that amazing? You're forgiven. And then in conclusion, what does he say? Verse 14, And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. There's love again. Love is like the, the, the belt that ties it all together, keeps the shirt tucked in, the pants up. Or it's the ligaments, it's translated, ligaments. How does love have to be above everything because forgiveness without love is just self-centeredness. Do you believe that? I'll forgive this person. Just get them off my back. They keep Okay, you're forgiven. That's just about me. When love is missing, all the garments become just simply garments of fleeting moment in time and garments of self-centeredness. But when the ligaments of love are like the ligaments of the muscles holding the body together... There's something supplying the ligaments. Colossians 2.19. Talking about proud teachers, Paul says, and not holding the head. These men are not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, same word as bond, having nourishment ministered or supplied. What's happening? They're increasing with the increase of God. What's the ligaments that's holding all the muscles of the church together? It's love. Where is that love coming from? The head, Jesus Christ. By being attached to the head, the supply of His love is coming to every ligament and through those ligaments now it's going out to all the muscles and it's keeping us together. Yes, love does keep us together. Not that kind of love. The love of God in Christ. When it's being nourished to your soul, then above everything, love holds us together through forgiveness and all the relationships and life in the church, in the family, and all the relationships we have that Paul begins to enumerate beginning in verse 18. May God bless us to learn 
the prerequisites and put on the clothing of being in Christ and then to learn the pattern, not our pattern, His pattern He's given us because all of our sins have been put away in Christ. We have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the forgiveness of sins. Without it, Lord, we would be still in our sins. We would still be dead in trespasses and in sins instead of being dead to sin because we've been joined to another, even Jesus Christ, that we might bring forth fruit unto God for Your glory. So Lord, help us to start today where there is maybe someone in this congregation who's holding a grudge against me or against somebody else in this congregation. or Where I may be if I'm holding any grudge in the future, Lord. Or where we may hold grudges one against another. We've determined. I'm not talking. I'm not staying there. I'm not being part of that anymore. May we overcome this old man Adamic nature which has been put off. And may we put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, which is being renewed after the image of Him, that is Christ, that created Him. And may we put down all division, redefining ourselves by the glory of Christ and being in Him, and may we therefore put on forgiveness like a garment that is well worn for the glory of Thy matchless name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.